This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Scriptures, a tool for navigation and understanding. In the first half, Todd B. Parker shares his address, True Doctrine, Understood, Changes Attitudes and Behavior. Then in the second half, Marianne Prater speaks on using spiritual maps to navigate through life. My late friend, Brother Robert J. Matthews, who taught religion here at BYU, used to say, If I speak by the Spirit and you listen by the Spirit, you'll hear things better than I say them. And I pray that can happen here today. I thought it appropriate to begin with a little poem written by a young man that I think might illustrate what sometimes may happen in parents' attempts to change the behavior of their children. He wrote, My parents told me not to smoke. I don't. Or listen to a naughty joke. I don't. Or think about intoxicating drink. I don't. Or chase the women wine and song. I don't. To dance and flirt is very wrong. I don't. I kiss no girls, not even one. Some folks think I have no fun. I don't. Now, you see, this young man's behavior was changed, but not his attitude. What's needed is a change in attitude as well as behavior. So I pose the question, what causes a change in attitude and behavior? President Boyd K. Packer stated, True doctrine understood changes attitudes and behavior. The study of the doctrines of the gospel will improve behavior quicker than a study of behavior will improve behavior. That is why we stress so forcefully the study of the doctrines of the gospel. The purpose of my presentation today is to explore four points of doctrine as found in the scriptures and the words of the brethren. Principle number one, draw upon the power of the word daily. Prophet Mormon wrote, And now, as the preaching of the word had a great tendency to lead the people to do that which was just, yea, it had a more powerful effect upon the minds of the people than the sword or anything else which had happened to them, therefore Alma thought it was expedient that they should try the virtue of the word of God. When I taught seminary years ago, I wanted to show the youth the power of the word that Alma describes. I wanted to show them that if they would make the word of God as found in the scriptures a part of their lives, it would change them. I didn't know exactly how to do that, but I tried this way. On the first day of class, I gave them a blank sheet of paper and said to them, Be honest in your writing here. I'm not going to look at this. This is for you only. Write down your honest feelings about religion, about God, Christ, Joseph Smith, First Vision, Church, or anything you want. Fold it over, staple it, put your name on the outside and the date, and I'll file it away and save it for you, but I'll give it back to you at the end of the year. For the next nine months, we studied the scriptures every day. We marked them. We noted them. The students were challenged to pray every day, morning and night, on their knees out loud, and read a chapter of scripture each day on their own for nine months. On the last day of class, I gave them a sheet of paper. I don't know if they even remembered doing this at the beginning of the year, and I said, Now, don't try to impress anybody here. Just be honest. Write your feelings about God, the Church, Christ, the gospel, or anything you'd like. When they got done, I handed them back their previous papers from the nine months earlier. They opened them up and made a comparison. I hadn't intended to read any of them, but a girl named Julie came to me with tears in her eyes and said, I want you to see this. Here was her first response. I guess sometimes I wonder if Christ really does live. I don't know for sure, and I've always wondered since I was old enough to think about it. I also wonder if this is the true Church or not. Everything we're told to do seems right, but I still have doubts. 
After nine months of studying the scriptures in seminary, she wrote, I know God lives, and His Son, Jesus Christ, is my brother, and He knows me, and He cares about me. Through prayer, I know He will guide us and show us the right way through His prophets, who I know were called of God. I know He loves each of us in a very special way. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the only true Church, and I know it without a doubt. And it was restored by Joseph Smith, who I know was a true prophet. I counted nine times, she said. I know. That's the power of the word in a young lady's life. I had a similar experience in a fifth period class later in the day. An afternoon class in a hot climate is not always the optimal setting for keeping students' attention. As a matter of fact, this class was a particular challenge to me as I considered my role in their temporal salvation because they seemed so impossible to reach. I thought the only way I could ever help save them would be to wait until they all died and do work for the dead. <clears throat> That, however, was not a viable option, but I gave them the same challenge and I gave them the rest of the classes and continued to teach them. At the end of the year, a young man from that fifth period class named Larry came to me and said, You might want to look at this. Here is his first response. I don't really know there's a God. I only go to church to make my mom and dad happy. I wish I had a testimony, but I don't. Sometimes I feel like I have an important job on earth, but I don't know what it is. I'm always wanting to do something wrong. Now, I'm an eyewitness to the always wanting to do something wrong part. <clears throat> Nine months later, he wrote, I know the Church is true. I have a testimony of it. I love my big brother and my Heavenly Father. I know they live. I know Joseph Smith was a prophet of God, and I have a testimony of it. I love this Church with all my life. Some say they do not know if they would give their life for it, but I know, if need be, and my Father willed it, I would. That's the power of the word in a young man's life. President Ezra Taft Benson promised, when individual members and families immerse themselves in the scriptures regularly and consistently, other areas of activity automatically will come. Testimonies will increase. Commitment will be strengthened. Families will be fortified. Personal revelation will flow. I add my testimony. There is power in the word that can be drawn upon daily. Principle number two. Let the scriptures and the Holy Ghost tell you all things that you should do. In 2 Nephi chapter 32, the prophet Nephi wrote, Feast upon the words of Christ, for behold, the words of Christ will tell you all things what ye should do and receive the Holy Ghost. It will show unto you all things what ye should do. I'd like to try to illustrate this principle with a personal experience. Many years ago, an invitation had come to me to leave our home in Utah where I was teaching seminary and moved to Arizona to teach institute in Tucson. My wife and I had prayerfully decided this was the right thing to do. It was a little frightening to leave parents, friends, security, and move to a desert land where we knew no one. We traveled to Tucson to find our new home. Upon our arrival in Tucson, we met with a real estate agent. After days of searching, we could find nothing in our price range that even came close to meeting our family's needs as far as location, uh, neighborhoods, schools, so forth. I wasn't used to this desert landscape. The homes had cactus and rock gardens instead of trees and grass lawns. My faith that this move was the right decision began to waver. We were out of options and out of time. The agent suggested that we pick one or two of the homes we like, revisit them, and make a decision. 
Problem was, I hadn't liked any of them. I was depressed. I was heartsick. I needed help. I couldn't sleep. In the middle of the night in the motel room, I turned to the scriptures for help. I read from several places, including Hebrews chapter 11 about faith. Nothing seemed to help. Then it happened. I was reading Ether chapter 12 in the Book of Mormon about faith. I came to verse 32. I read, and I also remembered that thou hast said, Thou hast prepared a house. I stopped. I looked up. The Lord had spoken to my soul. A house was prepared. I didn't know how, where, or what was to happen, but I knew a house was prepared. I didn't say anything to my wife. The next morning, we met the agent and drove to a house out on Bear Trail that my wife remembered as being a possibility of something that might work. As we drove up on a rock driveway, an enormous reptile dropped off a saguaro cactus right in front of the house and scurried off into the desert. I remember thinking, is this reptile a future playmate for my young children? <clears throat> we surveyed the house. Debbie went inside while I checked over the outside. I noticed the roof shingles were corroded from the leaking swamp cooler. The cedar fence was propped up by tubifors. There was a crack in the foundation. The swimming pool was filled with black algae. I thought, well, this is it. We need to decide. No one was near, so I knelt in prayer. I begged the Lord to let me know if this was the house prepared. As I opened my eyes and rose from my knees, I saw a magazine stuck in a bush. Could the magazine contain direction? I went to the bush, opened the magazine. It was a pornographic magazine. I closed the magazine. <laughs> I put it back in the bush. I went into the house and announced to my wife, this is not the house. <clears throat> my wife said, how do you know? I said, well, it's a bush thing. I'll explain later. <laughs> we then returned to the agent's car to check one new listing. En route to the new listing, we passed through a neighborhood that reminded me of our home in Utah. There were sidewalks and grass and lawn, children playing. The street had such a good spirit about it. I asked the agent if there was anything for sale in this area. She said no. We rounded a corner and I saw a house with a for sale sign. I asked, what about this one? She said, I have no idea. It's not listed. We copied down the number and made a call. The agent asked the owner why it wasn't listed. She said, well, they were planning to sell, but the home wasn't ready to show. But for some reason... Her agent had come early that morning and posted the for sale sign. Our agent asked if we could come see it. She agreed. After we pulled into the driveway and got out of the car, I said to my wife, This is the house. I know it. I couldn't be any more sure than Moses in the burning bush. She looked at me and said, This bush thing again. <clears throat> we loved the house. Through the agent, we made an offer. We returned to the motel to wait for the agent's call. I was sitting by the swimming pool at the motel. She finally called and told us they'd accepted our offer. I was ecstatic. I said I wanted to take pictures of the home to show our children, but I had no idea of the address of the property. I asked if she could give it to me, and she said, Do you have something to write on? I did, and she gave it to me. The address was 1509 South Burning Tree Avenue. <clears throat> I said, burning tree as in burning bush? She said, yes. I about fell in the pool. <clears throat> A house had been prepared. The Lord had spoken to my soul through Ether chapter 12, verse 32. Elder Dallin H. Oaks said, The idea that scripture reading can lead to inspiration and revelation opens the door to the truth 
that a scripture is not limited to what it meant when it was written, but may also include what that scripture means to a reader today. Even more, scripture reading may also lead to current revelation on whatever else the Lord wishes to communicate to the reader at that time. We do not overstate the point when we say that the scriptures can be a Urim and Thummim to assist each of us to receive personal revelation. I add my testimony that through the words of Scripture and the Holy Ghost, as Nephi said, you can be told and shown all things you should do. Principle number three, use the Scriptures to chase darkness from your light. In the 88th section of the Doctrine and Covenants we read, And that which doth not edify is not of God and is darkness. That which is of God is light, and he that receiveth light and continueth in God receiveth more light. And I say it that you may know the truth that you may chase darkness from among you. Many years ago I was teaching Release Time Seminary. Life was good. I was married to a wonderful woman. We had been blessed with four small children. I was blessed to study the scriptures and teach from them every day. I came home from school one day to discover we were expecting child number five. There was good news and bad news. The good news was the blessing of another child. The bad news was my wife got extremely ill during pregnancies. I knew it was going to be a rough road ahead. It seemed that everything that could go wrong did go wrong during the first three months of Debbie's pregnancy. The list included Debbie was sick with morning sickness. She was in bed for over four weeks and couldn't even sit up. I took a leave of absence from teaching seminary to get my doctoral degree. I was a full-time graduate student with 15 credit hours. I was attempting to fill the role of mother while Debbie was ill. This included house cleaning, laundry, fixing meals, tending kids, running errands, and nursemaid duties. The dishwasher broke. I had no money to fix it or to repair it. Uh, the dishes were done by hand. Jana got an ear infection. She couldn't hear me. I had to take her to the doctor. I had to farm out the two youngest girls of ages two and four during the day for different ward members to ten. Because of all the turmoil, I was up five to six times each night helping Debbie and consoling the children. Jeremy, then age six, was throwing rocks and an icicle on the front of the house and threw a rock through the large pitcher window in the living room. Jeremy also was chasing Jan and bumped a shelf of figurines. Uh, they crashed to the floor. My wife said, what was that? I said, oh, nothing, dear. Uh, the pile of pieces remained in a box for weeks, awaiting the day where I'd have time to glue them back together, uh, which never happened. <clears throat> Julie, age two, became ill. I took her to the doctor. I had to take Debbie to the hospital several times for intravenous hydration. With all the vomiting, she got dehydrated regularly. I was always at least 500 pages behind in my reading. I was supposed to be doing a literature search for my dissertation. I was serving in as elders quorum president. Many hours of service were required. Other things happened. Wind came up and blew the screen door right off the front of our house. It was lying out in the driveway. I was in an education class where I had to practice giving individualized intelligence tests. I tested most of the kids in the neighborhood. I began to doubt my own intelligence. <clears throat> the straw that broke the camel's back, I think, was our scruffy little mongrel dog named Fluffy began her breeding cycle. We had no fence. It seemed as if we had male dog visitors from everywhere, all enamored with Fluffy. I was in an all-time low. When you're at the bottom, there's no more bottom. I was drowning, being pulled down by an overwhelming whirlpool of duties that I couldn't keep up with. And in the process, 
I hadn't opened a book of scripture in over four weeks. Prior to all of this, I had committed myself to teach an adult evening class in the Book of Mormon. It was too much. I felt I couldn't do it, but I was committed. So the night before the class was to begin, I found myself preparing during the only quiet time available, between midnight and 2 a.m. After about an hour of study, I suddenly stopped. Something was different, very different. It took a few moments for me to realize what was happening. Then it came to me like a revelation from heaven. For the first time in four weeks, I wasn't depressed. It was also the first time in four weeks I had immersed myself in scripture study. Because of the tailspin of life I had found myself in, I felt I had no time to study the scriptures. I was barely surviving day to day. It seemed like it was impossible to allot any time for scripture study. I submit to you that the following words of President Spencer W. Kimball are true. There are blessings that come from immersing ourselves in the scriptures. The distance narrows between ourselves and our Father in heaven. Our spirituality shines brighter. We love more intensely those whom we should love. It's much easier to follow counsel. The lessons of life are learned more readily and surely. I witnessed the blessing of immersing myself in the scriptures. I testify that the light from the Book of Mormon helped chase darkness from me. Now, I acknowledge that scripture study alone can't resolve all despair and depression, but I do know that when I was finally compelled to act and not be acted upon, it was the keystone, the Book of Mormon, that led me back to the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Principle number four. During scripture study, search for types of Christ. The prophet Nephi said, Behold, my soul delighteth in proving unto my people the truth of the coming of Christ. And all things which have been given of God from the beginning of the world unto man are the typifying of him. I know his statement to be true. When we can grasp the idea that Christ is the master teacher, the universe is his classroom, and the curriculum is the atonement, we will never read the scriptures the same again. I believe you can find types in events, travels, topography, seasons, people, names, and so forth. For example, the Bible Dictionary under the Pauline Epistles for the book of Hebrews states that the journeys of Israel typify our journey toward eternal life. Israel left Canaan, went to Egypt, fell into bondage. They were led from bondage by Moses, were purified in the desert, then returned to their home to Canaan. Likewise, we leave God's presence, enter a fallen celestial world, and we are delivered from spiritual bondage by Jesus, pass through a purifying terrestrial millennium, and return to God's celestial presence. Let's look at Moses as a type or a symbol of Christ and compare the two deliverers. Moses was Israel's physical deliverer. Jesus is our spiritual deliverer. Moses' first plague, getting Israel out of Egypt, was turning water to blood. Jesus' first miracle in his ministry was turning water to wine. Moses' last plague was the death of the firstborn. Jesus' last miracle was the resurrection of the firstborn. How did Moses free Israel from Egyptian bondage? He had the Israelites take a lamb, male and blemish, firstborn, no broken bones, and sacrifice this lamb by shedding its blood. The Israelites then put the blood of the lamb on the lintels and the two side posts of the doors. When they did that, the destroyer passed over them. The blood saved them. The blood of the lamb saved them from physical death. In our lives, we have to accept the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, and symbolically put the blood of His Atonement on the door frames of our lives. The blood of the Lamb of God will save us from spiritual death. Now, those lambs used for sacrifice had to be firstborn. I don't know if you have thought or considered Jesus' birth in the light of His being the Lamb of God. To whom did the angels go to announce the birth of the Lamb of God? 
specific shepherds were assigned to tend the flocks of sheep to be used in temple sacrifice. Only a certified firstborn lamb could be used. The shepherds were to be eyewitnesses that the lambs were firstborn. So when the Lamb of God was born, where did the angels go? To the shepherds. Why? Because that was their job, to witness the birth of firstborn lambs. Moses tells us in the book of Leviticus, chapter 1, that the lambs to be used for sacrifice were to be slain on the north side of the altar. So where do you suppose Jesus, the Lamb of God, was sacrificed? The crucifixion was just north of the temple altar in Jerusalem at a place called Golgotha. The Lamb of God was sacrificed north of the temple altar All things testify of Christ. After Israel left Egyptian bondage, they went into the borders of the Red Sea. In the movie The Ten Commandments, Yul Brynner plays the part of Pharaoh and says, Moses' God is a poor general. He leaves them no retreat. Well, not really. Moses went there on purpose. Why? Because they had to go through the Red Sea. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that Israel passed through the Red Sea was a symbol of baptism by water and a baptism by fire. Israel was saved by water. That's why there had to be a wall of water on each side. Israel was baptized by immersion in the Red Sea. The fire held the Egyptians back. Hence, Israel was also saved by fire. It's the same with each of us. We need to be saved through a baptism of water and a baptism of fire. Now, when Israel got to the borders of the Red Sea, the pillar of fire came around behind them. There was first a separation of light and darkness. It was light to the Israelites going through the Red Sea, but it was darkness to the Egyptians. What did God do on the first day of creation? He separated the light from the darkness. What did God then do on the second day of creation? He separated the waters from the waters. What did Moses do? He separated the waters from the waters, and Israel went through on dry ground. They got into the wilderness. The wilderness is a symbol of purification. They were there 40 years. When we get into the millennium, we'll have a 1,000 years of purification. What did they eat while in the wilderness? They ate manna. What is manna? It's bread from heaven. And who is Jesus? He's the bread of life. And where did he come from? Heaven. And where was he born? He was born in Bethlehem. And what does Bethlehem? mean? Bethlehem means house of bread. By chance, I don't think so. What did they drink? They drank water. Who is the living water? It is Jesus. Where did they get the water? From a rock. Who is the rock? The rock is Christ. By chance, I don't think so. When Israel went into the promised land, they went through the Jordan River. Why go through a river? You have to be born again. Who led them through the river? It was Joshua. Joshua is the Hebrew for the Greek word Jesus. It was Jesus who caused them to be born again and led them through the Jordan River back to the home and the land of their fathers. They crossed the river at Bethabra, the same place where Jesus would later be baptized. That section of the Jordan River is the lowest body of fresh water on earth. Elder Nelson taught that Jesus' baptism at Bethabara symbolized his descending below all things. All things testify of Christ. Consider names, simple names like Joseph Smith. Joseph in Hebrew is Yosef. Yosef means, may God add sons. A smith is someone who forges or fashions or beats something out of raw material. So, if you're God and you want to establish a kingdom out of raw material and then add sons to it, how do you describe that? Joseph Smith. What does Hiram mean? Hiram means my brother is exalted by chance. I don't think so. Consider the seasons. When was Joseph born? Joseph was born at winter solstice when light is coming into the world. What was the sign to the Nephites when Jesus was born? It was three days of light. When was Joseph killed? Joseph was killed at summer solstice when light is going out of the world. What was the sign to the Nephites at Jesus' death? It was three days of darkness. All things testify of Christ. Moses chapter 6 verse 63 states, All things bear record of Christ. Things in the heaven above on the earth, in the earth, and under the earth. The sun itself is a type of Christ. It comes from the east. Christ will also come from the east. The sun gives light and life to all things. Its heat can also consume all things. Those who live in Arizona understand that. 
It does both. The light of Christ gives life to all things. Christ's glory will also consume the wicked at his second coming. People whose lives are filled with darkness will be destroyed by the light. People whose lives are full of light will be saved by that light, as if by fire, to use Nephi's words. Doctrine and Covenants, section 88, states that the earth abideth the law of the celestial kingdom. Well, what does the earth do? The earth revolves around the sun, S-U-N. What should we do if we're to abide the law of the celestial kingdom? Our lives should also revolve around the sun, the S-O-N. The universe was designed to testify of Christ. Consider hibernation. Every creature, every squirrel, every insect, snake, bear that hibernates and lies dormant during the winter appears to be dead. Each one that comes alive again in the spring testifies of Christ and his resurrection. Every tree, every plant, every leaf that becomes green each spring testifies of Christ. Do you think it was by chance that all these things come to life after appearing to be dead at the same time of the year when Jesus came to life again? I don't think so. All things testify of Christ. Now, why do you go to bed at night? Maybe the wrong group to ask this question, but why do most people go to bed at night? Because they're tired? No. You symbolically die every night. Why do you get up in the morning? To go to school? No. You symbolically resurrect every morning. Have you ever noticed your roommates when they're sleeping? They look dead. Arising from sleep every morning is a symbol that we are so close to that we don't even recognize that we symbolically resurrect every morning. Now, those of you that have roommates that sleep past noon now know why we have to have the morning and afternoon of the first resurrection. But <laughs> no, that that's a joke. <clears throat> all right. But it is no joke that all things testify of Christ, and I add my testimony. That's true. Now, in conclusion, I'd like to issue a challenge. One last heartfelt plea. Forty-two years ago, I made a terrible mistake. I was a student at a nearby university. On this very day, January 20th, at this very hour, I was standing by my mother's hospital bed. She was dying. She was in a coma in an intensive care unit following complications from surgery. I was holding her hand and praying she would regain consciousness. I longed to tell her that I loved her. I had been prompted by the Spirit several times before her surgery to do so, but I had resisted the prompting. I had reflected on the last time I had said those words to her. To my best recollection, it was in third grade. I had written a little poem. Of all the mothers, kind and true, you are the best, and I love you. My mother died 42 years ago tomorrow, on January 21, 1973. I lost a great opportunity as a result of resisting a prompting of the Spirit. So how does that apply to you here today? My hope is that each one of you today has felt a prompting of the Spirit, hopefully a prompting to improve your life through scripture study. My prayer is that you will respond to that prompting of the Spirit and not resist it. I pray that you will not carry with you a regret of resisting a spiritual prompting like I have all these years. My challenge to you is study the scriptures daily. Draw upon the word daily. Let the words of Christ tell you all things that you should do and drive darkness from your life. May you always remember that all things testify of Christ. I pray that your consequent understanding of true doctrine will change both your attitudes and your behavior. 
And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Scriptures, a tool for navigation and understanding. We've just heard from Todd B. Parker. After the break, we'll return with Marianne Prater for Using Spiritual Maps to Navigate Through Life. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Scriptures, a Tool for Navigation and Understanding. Next is Marianne Prater, Chair of the BYU Department of Counseling, Psychology, and Special Education at the time of this address, titled Using Spiritual Maps to Navigate Through Life. I would like to share with you three examples in my life that make me grateful for maps. My first example. When I moved to Provo six years ago, I purchased a home. Although I looked at many homes in the area, I selected one that was somewhat geographically hard to find. I grew up in the Salt Lake Valley where almost the whole valley follows the same east, west, north, and south coordinates first laid out by Brigham Young. No such universal address system exists across the Utah Valley. When one changes city limits, the address coordinate system also changes. That fact, coupled with the unusual boundaries of the cities, makes navigating the streets difficult for those new to the area. Once I was settled in my new home, I had family and friends, primarily from Salt Lake, come to visit. The streets in Utah Valley were as foreign to them as they were for me. I would give them explicit but complicated directions to my house. But in every single instance, five to ten minutes before their expected arrival, I would receive a cell phone call asking for confirmation that they were headed in the right direction. I didn't think about giving them a map. My second example. The only magazine I recall coming through the mail to our home when I was a young child, besides church magazines, was the National Geographic. My maternal grandparents subscribed to the magazine each year as a birthday present for my father. He enjoyed reading about the far reaches of the world, and I enjoyed the exotic pictures and the enclosed maps. My parents kept these magazines for many years, which my siblings and I relied on for school reports in pre-internet days. One map of the world my parents posted on our family room wall. I always enjoyed looking at that map, and in my early years I envisioned myself visiting all of these places. As I grew older, I realized I would never visit all the lands of the earth, but I still had a desire to travel to those I could reach. My third example. A few months ago, my father's sister, my aunt from Rome, Georgia, passed away. Since both of my parents are deceased, my siblings and I felt strongly that our side of the family needed to be represented at the funeral. The only Utah Praters who could get away from other commitments were me, my sister, and my sister-in-law. My father was raised in and around Rome, and all three of us had been there many times. 
But on all previous trips, either my brother or my father navigated the city and the country roads as the driver. They both knew the territory very well. After the three of us had flown into Atlanta, we realized we didn't have a map. We knew we needed to drive in the northwest direction, but we didn't know the specific roads. Fortunately, a well-seasoned traveler overheard our conversation and gave us verbal directions which we could easily follow in our rented car. Since it was very late at night, we were grateful to reach our hotel without delay. The next morning, the first thing I did was buy a map. Navigating around Rome, Georgia wasn't that difficult, but many of the destinations we needed to reach were outside of the city boundaries on country roads. A map of the area was most helpful in directing us to where we needed to go. These three stories illustrate my gratitude for maps. My verbal directions to my home were difficult because of their complexity and the unfamiliar territory. I, the person who knew the directions well, was only a phone call away for clarification or reassurance. The world map on my family's family room wall gave me a much broader perspective of life. I learned at an early age that my neighborhood was but a small portion of the whole earth. The world map also gave me aspirations to visit lands near and far. The third story, the map of Rome, Georgia, gave me, my sister and sister-in-law, specific grounding in where we were, clarity in where we wanted to be, and the route to take to reach our destination. Not unlike physical maps, we have spiritual maps to help guide and direct us to our ultimate destination back to our heavenly home. But sometimes we use the wrong maps to measure our progress along life's journey. One such map is a timeline. When I graduated from high school, I thought I would follow the path of most young LDS women. Using a timeline framework, I would go to college for two to three years, meet a returned missionary, be married in the temple, return to school to finish my degree, and then start a family. We would have about five children and, if we were lucky, 25 grandchildren. After my husband retired from his very lucrative business, we would serve admission together and then pass into the next life within six months of one another. (laughs) This was one map I was going to follow. And I did, at least to step one. (laughs) I went to college. The rest of my timeline evaporated. The Lord had other purposes for me and directed me in ways I could not have predicted. Rather than timelines, I propose that better spiritual maps exist for us to follow, namely the scriptures, our patriarchal blessings, priesthood blessings, prayer, and promptings of the Spirit. For sake of time, I will focus only on the first spiritual map listed, the scriptures. One of my favorite sections in the Doctrine and Covenants is section 25, Revelation directed to Emma Smith, the wife of the prophet Joseph Smith. Although many revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants were given to individuals, 
The counsel directed to them also applies to us today. As the Lord has said, what I say unto one, I say unto all. The guidance given to Emma Smith is one example of a spiritual map we can find throughout the scriptures. I will refer to just a few of the verses in this section today. One of the first pieces of counsel the Lord gives Emma is in verse 4. Murmur not because of the things which thou hast not seen, for they are withheld from thee and from the world, which is wisdom in me in a time to come. Emma faced many challenges and was asked to endure many things. My challenges, and I'm certain many of yours, pale in comparison to what Emma experienced. If the Lord counseled her not to murmur, how much more does this counsel apply to us? The word murmur is defined in the Merriam-Webster online dictionary as, quote, a half-suppressed or muttered complaint, an expression of dissatisfaction, pain, or resentment, end of quote. This definition implies that murmuring is not a boisterous, overt complaint, but one that is perhaps stated under our breath or even carried in our hearts. For what should we not murmur? Elder Neil A. Maxwell said, Strange as it seems, we sometimes respond better to larger challenges than to the incessant small ones. One can be sincerely grateful for his major blessings, but regularly murmur over minor irritations. Enduring large tests while failing the seemingly small quizzes just won't do. So what are our minor irritations? Perhaps we murmur about individuals. For example, a roommate who borrowed your shoes without asking, a spouse who neglected to put the cap back on the toothpaste, a neighbor who was slow in trimming a bush infringing on your yard, the office receptionist who couldn't answer your question, the motorist who cut in front of your car, the paper boy who missed the front porch, or the BYU professor who would not give you that one extra point that would change your grade from a B-plus to an A-minus. Or maybe we murmur about events in our life, such as not getting the English 150 section we wanted, or the apartment we had our hearts set on. We might even murmur over more substantial life circumstances, such as not yet finding our eternal companion or being burdened with extenuating family circumstances. Murmuring is not conducive to and will, in fact, suppress the Spirit of the Lord. The Lord's counsel to Emma in verse 10 of section 25 reads, And verily I say unto thee, that thou shalt lay aside the things of this world and seek for the things of a better. In reference to this scripture, President Hinckley said, I feel he was not telling Emma that she should not feel concerned about a place to live, food on her table, and clothing. He was saying to her that she should not be obsessed with these things as so many of us are wont to be. He was telling her to get her thoughts on the higher things of life the things of righteousness and goodness, matters of charity and love for others, the things of eternity. 
Maintaining an eternal perspective can help us in so many ways. It can even help us avoid murmuring. Many of the minor issues in our lives today will all but disappear in time. Having been in university administration positions for several years, I have seen this occur over and over and am guilty of it myself. Students, staff, or faculty with small and petty concerns from an eternal perspective, but which seemed so traumatic at the time, dissipate and become forgettable the following week, month, or year. Our attitude plays a large role in murmuring. A poem entitled How Different, recited by Elder, now President Henry B. Eyring, in October 1989 General Conference speaks to this. Some murmur when the sky is clear and wholly bright to view if one small speck of dark appear in their great heaven of blue. And some with thankful love are filled if one but streak of light, one ray of God's good mercy, gild the darkness of their night. Returning to section 25, in verse 7 we read that Emma is told, And thou shalt be ordained under his hand to expound scriptures and to exhort the church, according as it shall be given thee by my spirit. Emma Smith was set apart by her husband Joseph Smith to be the first Relief Society general president in this dispensation. Emma was to be a leader and a teacher of righteousness and truth. To do so, she needed to study the gospel through the scriptures and share her testimony with others. We, too, are asked to become knowledgeable of the gospel through scripture study and to bear testimony of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like Emma's calling as the Relief Society General President, we are all called to serve the Lord in formal ways, primarily through our wards and stakes. In October 2007 General Conference, Elder Boyd K. Packer reminded us of the lay ministry of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He said, Everything that is done in the Church is done by ordinary members, the weak things of the world. And then he continued, There is a natural tendency to look at those who are sustained to presiding positions, to consider them to be higher and of more value in the Church than an ordinary member. Somehow we feel they are worth more to the Lord than we are. It just does not work that way. As general authorities of the Church, we are just the same as you are and you are just the same as we are. You have the same access to the powers of revelation for your families and for your work and for your callings as we do. You will have many and varied opportunities to continue to serve the Lord. All of you will be called upon to serve in leadership and teaching positions in wards, stakes, and beyond. The gifts and talents you have been given will be used to bless the lives of many people if you will willingly accept and magnify your Church callings. Just as Emma, we need to rely on the scriptures to help and direct us as we fulfill these and other responsibilities. In verse 8 of section 25, Emma is told that thy time shall be given to writing and to learning much. She was to study the things of the world and to devote time to expressing her thoughts in writing. Of what should we study and of what should we write? 
As BYU students, you are currently and actively engaged in learning much. At least I hope you are. After all, the BYU motto reads, Enter to learn, go forth to serve. Hopefully, however, you will not stop learning once you graduate. Learning must be perceived as a lifelong pursuit. Discover ways in which you can continue a passion of learning. Read books outside of your discipline. Discover historic sites within walking or short driving distance from your home. Attend community events such as lectures or concerts. As we read in the Doctrine of Covenants, section 109, verse 8, Establish a house, even a house of prayer, a house of fasting, a house of faith, a house of learning, a house of glory, a house of order, a house of God. President Hinckley referenced Emma being told, Thy time shall be given to writing, as follows. Keep journals that you express your thoughts on paper. Writing is a great discipline. It is a tremendous educational effort. It will assist you in various ways, and you will bless the lives of many, your families and others, now and in the years to come, as you put on paper some of your experiences and some of your musings. I have been an inconsistent journal writer. Perhaps that is why I chose to include this in my talk. In some ways, I was more consistent as a young adult than I have been as an adult. I recall hearing a radio report in the late 1990s that as of that day, 2,000 days were left until the year 2000. In my attempt at becoming a good journal writer once again, I committed to write an entry in my journal every day from that day forth until the turn of the century. That way, I would have a guaranteed 2,000 entries in my journal. Once I made the commitment, I began and successfully met my goal. However, I was so burned out that I have inconsistently written in my journal ever since. (laughs) I don't think the goal I set for myself was appropriate because it didn't entail the spirit of journal writing as it should be. Several years after my maternal grandmother passed away, I was assisting my mother transcribe her pencil-written journals. My mother would read while I would type on the computer. My grandmother lived well into my young adult years, and I have fond memories spending time with her both as a child and as a young adult. I knew her well. But the journals I was transcribing took place before I was born. I was touched and inspired by her day-to-day activities, particularly the service that she rendered. President Spencer W. Kimball had 33 black binders on the shelves of his personal study when he was called to be president of the Church. On many occasions, he encouraged the Saints to keep personal journals. In one New Era article, he wrote, We may think there is little of interest or importance in what we personally say or do, but it is remarkable how many of our families, as we pass on down the line, are interested in all that we do and all that we say. We often remember Section 25 for the specific responsibility charged to Emma Smith. In verses 11 and 12, we read, And it shall be given thee to make a selection of sacred hymns, 
For my soul delighteth in the song of the heart, yea, the song of the righteous is a prayer unto me, and it shall be answered with a blessing upon their heads. In 1835, five years after Section 25 was revealed, the first hymnal was published. Those five years were difficult times for Emma. She had given birth to twins who lived for only three hours and adopted twins, one of whom died of exposure when a mob invaded the home where they were staying. The hymn book was entitled, A Collection of Sacred Hymns for the Church of the Latter-day Saints. It included 90 hymn texts, 39 of which had been written by Latter-day Saint poets. It was common in that day for hymn books to include words only, with no music. This collection of hymns was published in a vest pocket edition, measuring only three inches by four and a half inches. Emma's charge was very clear. She was to create the collection of hymns, and she fulfilled her responsibilities dutifully. What is our charge to be? We probably won't receive a revelation from the Lord as direct as that which Emma received. So how are we to know what to do with our lives? What should be our career? Where should we live? How can we best use our gifts and talents to bless the lives of others? The scriptures and living prophets can provide us direction in our lives. To speak to God, we pray. To hear God speak to us, we read the scriptures and feel the promptings of the Spirit. Let me share another personal experience. When I completed my doctoral work and was looking for a full-time university position, I applied all over the United States. The first serious offer I received was from Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. I developed bronchitis on my interview trip. Consequently, I didn't feel as though I had interviewed well. I was amazed when they offered me the position and then gave me a week to get back to them. Now I had to make a decision. In Doctrine and Covenants section 9, we are told not to simply ask the Lord what to do, but to study it out in our mind, make a decision, and then ask the Lord if our decision is correct. I followed this counsel, doing everything I could in my power to make an informed decision. I learned everything about the university and the community, even speaking with local church leaders and seeking out former students who I did not know previously. Although I prayed continually throughout the week, I prayed most fervently the morning I needed to return their call with my decision. I told the Lord I had decided to accept their offer. The Spirit witnessed to me rather powerfully that I had made the correct decision, and off I went. My experience in Carbondale, Illinois was wonderful, but after three years I knew it was time for me to move on, so once again I started applying for jobs all over the country. One position opened was at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. I remember thinking, I really don't want to move to Hawaii, but this job announcement describes my skills exactly, so I threw my application in the ring. They offered me an interview and then the job. I again followed the same process I had done previously in order to determine if the Lord truly wanted me to move so far away from family and friends but I did not receive the same conviction I had previously received. During this time I was reading the Book of Mormon. I came across 2 Nephi chapter 29, verse 7, which reads, 
Know ye not that there are more nations than one? Know ye not that I, the Lord your God, have created all men, and that I remember those who are upon the isles of the sea, and that I rule in the heavens above and in the earth, and I bring forth my word unto the children of men, yea, even upon all the nations of the earth? I felt as though the Lord was speaking directly to me. Know ye not, Marianne, that I remember those who are upon the isles of the sea? The Lord did not give me the same type of strong confirmation like before, but he spoke to me through the scriptures, saying, If you choose to do this, you will not be alone. I will be with you. That was an answer to my prayers. The opening hymn we sang has particular meaning to me. It did not appear in the first hymnal Emma Smith compiled primarily because it had not yet been written. The story that has passed down the years is that Charles L. Walker was bored during a very long sacrament meeting and amused himself by penning the words, Dearest children, God is near you. After the poem was written, John Menzies McFarlane set the poem to music. Both Brother Walker and Brother McFarlane were early pioneers who helped settle southern Utah. Dearest Children was first published in the Juvenile Instructor in 1877 and eventually found its way into our hymnal. This hymn is particularly meaningful to me because the music was composed by my great-great-grandfather McFarlane. Family has conjectured that these two friends may have composed other hymns and songs together, but none others have survived. At the time I was asked to be a devotional speaker, I was also asked to select an opening hymn. I was fairly stunned by the invitation, and without much thinking, I immediately responded, Let's sing, dearest children. Once I began writing my talk, I realized that the words to this hymn correspond nicely to what I wanted to discuss. The hymn provides a map, not unlike section 25, of what we are to do in this life to return to our heavenly home. Dearest children, God is near you, watching o'er you day and night, and delights to own and bless you if you strive to do what's right. He will bless you. He will bless you if you put your trust in him. Dearest children, holy angels watch your actions night and day, and they keep a faithful record of the good and bad you say. Cherish virtue. Cherish virtue. God will bless the pure in heart. Children, God delights to teach you by his Holy Spirit's voice. Quickly heed its holy promptings. Day by day, you'll then rejoice. O oh, proof faithful, O oh, proof faithful, to your God and Zion's cause. Earlier, I provided three examples of why I am grateful for maps. These physical maps are not unlike the spiritual maps available to all of us. When my family and friends were trying to find my home, I was only a phone call away for clarification or reassurance. We can always reach our Heavenly Father through prayer. The map on my family room wall as a child helped me see my life in a much broader perspective, similar to the eternal perspective Heavenly Father wishes us to take. And the map of Rome, Georgia, 
provide a specific direction to get to our destination, not unlike the scriptures, patriarchal blessings, other priesthood blessings, and promptings of the Spirit. Not only am I grateful for physical maps, I am grateful that we have been given spiritual maps as well. I leave you with my testimony of Jesus Christ. I know he lives. I know he knows and loves each of us. I know he will help guide and direct our lives, if, but we will do our part. May we always keep our eye on the things of eternity and rely on our spiritual maps as we navigate through this life, is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Scriptures, a Tool for Navigation and Understanding, with thoughts from Todd B. Parker and Marianne Prater. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.